Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is our weekend podcast. So we had to bring in the heavy hitters, my colleague, Mona Charon from the Bulwark. So, Hi, Charlie. Uh, Thanks for that, Sober K. <laughs> well, you, you know, we, we did the live stream last night and Unfortunately, I still haven't gotten over some of the things that we were uh, talking about and arguing about. So we may do a little bit of that. That's um, fine. And, and and I just wanted I, I wanted to give a shout out. Uh, Mona has her own podcast, Beg to Differ, which I strongly recommend. Uh, who who's on this week, uh, Mona? Elliot Abrams talking about Cuba. Really? Okay. Yeah. So this is you know for people who um, you know might want a podcast that has somewhat fewer explicit ratings than this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually sat down and went went through. I think it was on Apple Podcasts. How, how you know how many times we've gotten an explicit rating, and they just probably just should put it on as a default setting. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, and today and today is not going to be any any different, probably. So. Look, I, I I suppose I should apologize in advance for inflicting this on many of our listeners, but um, we we have to do it. Actually, I did it in my newsletter today. I said, look, you know, just stop what you're doing. Take a deep breath. Pour yourself a very stiff drink. And I understand that it's early, but pour yourself a stiff drink and watch the video that was uh, was produced yesterday by by our good friend uh, Barry Rubin for the Republican Accountability Project, and I can only play the audio here, so uh, apologies for that. You, you need to see the full video. It is a montage of uh, the thoroughly deplorable Dinesh D'Souza. Does he need much introduction? Uh, Dinesh D'Souza um, mocking the injured police officers. And it goes back and forth between the testimony from those officers before the January 6th committee and Dinesh D'Souza's mockery. Now, just a little bit of background. You know, I were discussing this morning. I mean, there was a time when Dinesh D'Souza was a big deal in the conservative movement. I mean, he's, he's become very much a deplorable troll. He shows up and he was featured at one of the Trump rallies here in Wisconsin. He's written you know, quite a few books. He's uh, he's a convicted felon who was pardoned by by Trump. And, you know, in, in, in many ways, the the whole collapse of the conservative movement can sort of be tracked through Dinesh D'Souza. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. we, we 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 both go way back with him. I mean, I, I, I mentioned on the live. I remember when he wrote this best selling book about higher education and yeah. um, I know that you, that you know you had reviewed some of his books in the past, uh, not right. always not always favorably. Well, I was mm. you know I was well disposed toward him for illiberal education, uh, and uh, I thought you know thought he was a reasonable mainstream conservative, sort of an intellectual. He seemed pretty strong, and then after nine eleven, he wrote a really terrible uh, book. Uh, I, I guess lumping in liberalism with the terrorists or something. I don't know, but I, I panned it for National Review. So I guess he and I have not been on good terms since around two thousand two. Well, that that really was kind of the turning point for him but uh, again you, you need to go online to to watch the video um, but here is the audio because I I, I I I do think that even though you could just sort of brush it off as just more performative assholery I th- I, I, I think it, it reflects a larger pattern I, I do think that it's revealing in more fundamental ways so okay taking a deep breath and taking a stiff drink this is the audio version of this Republican accountability project video the voice you will hear is Dinesh D'Souza 
Yesterday's Pelosi commission hearing was just, I mean, to me, it was a laugh fest. They began to beat me with their fists laugh and with fest. what felt like hard metal objects. I was electrocuted again and again and again. He starts off with the crying and then he basically goes, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I could feel myself losing oxygen and recall this is how I'm going to die. I thought I was going to die laughing. Perhaps around Fuck 20 people you. joined in screaming. It's just you fucking, fucking nigger. <laughs> the cop pretends to cry. I mean, one after the other. There was a very good chance I would be torn apart or shot to death with my own Man. weapon. I thought Man. of my four daughters who might lose their dad. <laughs> You know what? This is all scripted. This is all fake. Directly in front of me, a man grabbed the front of my gas mask and used it to beat my head against the door. And you know that they're all faking it. <laughs> At the hospital, doctors told me that I had suffered a heart attack, a traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, literally grown men crying and not crying over something that immediately happened to them. Oh, I lost my wife in an axe. No, no. This is crying over the events of January 6th. Unbelievable. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens are downplaying or outright denying what happened. You would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. Those are people that love this country. Some of the people who breached the Capitol today were not Trump supporters and in fact were members of Antifa. The indifference yeah. shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. Okay, so they got me they got me wound up all over again. Um Mona, I mean, you know, who are these people? Do they have any shred of decency left? And that's of course a trick question because we we know the answer is no. And On there the is country, no bottom. No, they're the opposite of decency. They are depravity personified. Uh, that's that's what we're dealing with, and you know, it, it's it's particularly shocking, I guess. Although we're, you know we've been seeing this now f- unroll for five years or more, but it's particularly shocking coming from the people who keep telling us that they are standing up. They are for Western civilization, right? They want to um, to protect our values and the standards and traditions of Western civilization. And yet they represent the worst kind of savagery, bullying, complete loss of empathy, of, of manners, of any standards that any civilized people uphold, Western Civ or any other Civ for that matter. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the idea that these are voices of conservatism is just, is just foul. Yeah, there's, <clears throat> there's no idea here. Uh, there, this is nothing about freedom or small government or, you know, character counts. This is just this cultivated crudity, crassness, and cruelty. Um, that's really become kind of the posture. And I guess that's kind of the through line that, that I wanted to talk about. And I wrote about it in my newsletter today. The, the, the through line of this is not just these are obnoxious, terrible people. It, it is, it is the, it is the sort of celebration of strength versus weakness, this faux posture, this attitude, this kind of strutting super machismo that, you know, men who cry or 
Simone Biles, who's one of the greatest athletes of, uh, of, of all time, you know, shows weakness because, you know, she didn't do what Charlie Kirk wanted them to do. There's no coherent set of ideas here. It is just kind of this just celebration of us versus them and the fact that we have no empathy, nobody should, I mean, you know. And we were discussing this on the uh, on the live stream last night, and, and I know we've been reluctant to use the F word fascism, but I think it's a good moment to remind ourselves that fascism is not really a coherent ideology. It's more of a sort of an attitude of of will to power, you know, the, the strong are good, the weak are bad. And and this 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 ethos has just is, is now just suffusing what used to be the conservative movement. Yeah, it, I think uh, in a recent podcast you said that Nietzsche would would yep. fit in just fine here, and I think that's exactly that's exactly it. It's it's you know, um, morality is dead. God is dead. It's the will to power. It's the, the Ubermensch. Um, and honestly, I, yeah, I use the word fascistic about these people. That's exactly what they are: the worship of strength instead of virtue. Um, is is a dead giveaway. Um, and, you know, if you go back and you read, you know, the kinds of things that Mussolini and Hitler and all the rest of them um, would say, they did worship strength and they really believed it. They thought that, that um, you know, life is a, is, is, you know, nature is red in tooth and claw. Um, and mm -hmm. therefore you just have to be the toughest and you have to be the strongest and you have to inflict pain. And, you know, Christianity, according to Nietzsche was weak. It was, it was flawed because it was meek and mild and turn the other cheek and all. No, none of that. Yeah. You know? So much. Yeah. So much for, um, you know, Christianity, because this, this really is more <laughs> Nietzschean. See, even, even with that, you know, I guess the irony here is, and we got to acknowledge it is that there are a few people who are tougher than, say, Simone Biles. That's exactly and, right. And, and you, you want to talk about strength and courage and, oh and, 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 and heroism? Yeah. Well, look at those three police officers who, you know, held the line. And there you have this febrile, you know, doughy man-child um, you know, mocking them. So it, it's not yeah. the, it's not the celebration of actual toughness. It's the celebration of the faux toughness. And by, and by the way, this is something that's also a through line with, with Trump, you know, that, that he thinks that the, the Supreme Court should have been tougher, braver, stronger, which is also a code for willing to do really bad things. And, yep. and, 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 and Dinesh D'Souza really is a perfect example of this. I mean, there's a guy that's been disgraced and discredited over and over again, but he's gotten license. He's gotten this free pass in the era of Trump. He's a convicted felon. Doesn't matter. He's going to get a pardon. You know, he's thrown out as uh, as president of a Christian college because he's been diddling his mistress on the side. No problem. For a lot of these people, Trumpism means an absolute freedom and liberation from any sort of accountability, any sort of consequence for their really bad behavior. And they've convinced themselves, whether it's the Steve Bannons or the Seb Gorkas, that, that even if they are really awful human beings, their awfulness is a sign of their of being strong. You follow me? I mean, it is. Oh, yeah. It, it really is this. And, and again, yeah. we've seen this play before. Well, Charlie, you know, morality is for suckers. Right? I well, mean, that's right. That's that's their that's their worldview. And uh, and, you know, ev almost every single speech. And I, I remember my friend and colleague, Jay Nordlinger, um, pointing this out 
way early in the whole Trump phenomenon. This this uh, talk of toughness, the worship of strength. You know, he way back in the in uh, uh, you know 1989 when Tiananmen Square happened, Trump was out there saying, you know, at first it looked dicey there for the leadership, but then they showed strength. He said, you know, putting that down, they showed strength when he gave his talk, his final, you know, rabble rousing uh, talk to the to the to the mob on January 6th. What did he say? We have to see if, you know, we have to give those Republicans strength. Some of them have it. Some of them don't. We have to see if Mike Pence has strength. What does strength mean? It means violence. It means complete disregard for morality or human rights or the rule of law or the rule of law it means doing what i want that's strength and uh it is a very if people aren't frightened of that they are not getting it so last night during the live stream you made a really great point you know we we've it's now become a cliche that we live in a post-truth world or maybe a post-shame world but also we're in a post-coherent world and this is part of the problem that you know, when we're talking about how do you argue with a lot of these people because in their heads they hold these radically conflicting uh, ideas that are completely incompatible with one another. Do you remember your riff on this? Because I that, do. That, that, that was really good. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. I, look, I just you know you look at the um, arguments that had been have been advanced on the right and that are still circulating about what to make of January sixth. So you have the theme that it was actually Antifa that did all these things, or you have the theme that it was an FBI deep state plot, or alternatively, no, it was patriots there. It was just like a tourist visit. It was, they were loving. It was a great crowd. The police invited them in, uh, or you have, you know, it was an uprising that we should all emulate, and Ashley Babbitt was mm-hmm. um, a martyr. And these things contradict one another, and that doesn't bother them mm-hmm. because, the, as you know, they are post coherence. It doesn't matter whether any of it hangs together. It's they are so motivated by what. Brett Stevens calls the pornification of American politics. What a great line. Isn't that great? You know, it's just self-pleasuring, you know? And so does it make sense? Does it hold together? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They are, they, and so as you say, you know, how do you argue somebody out of these positions when there's no coherence to their arguments? You know, and this is what's frustrating because if and and people you know in out in the world listening to us, if you've ever tried to argue with with one of these folks, you, you'll you'll know what we're talking about. It's always a moving target. It is whack a mole, so that because there is a this jumble of ideas that are contradictory, they can sort of pick and choose which one they're going they're going to offer. So if you you pin them down on the well, you know this one fact is false, and you're not going to defend this, they are able and willing to pivot to something else that may be completely contradictory without blinking of the eye. And yep. you watch this and you go, okay, it's like, you know, what? how do you reason with all of this? And I know that we've been lectured by some of your former colleagues that, you know, that we should show more respect, that we shouldn't be, you know, look at them as disdain, with disdain or think that they are deplorable. But at a certain point, you can't talk with people who not only won't recognize reality, but also won't recognize any normal pattern of rationality and coherence. Yeah. You can't can't do it. 
Yep. I, I, I don't know. I mean, on the other hand, what's the alternative? You have to just keep arguing because, uh, we're, right. you know, otherwise we you have civil war. Right. Okay. So, um, let, let's, let's go to the, the other crazy, um, as you and I are speaking, the, um, coronavirus COVID wars are exploding again. We have new information about the, the Delta virus, um, you know, the, the transmissibility, the danger of it. Uh, President Biden gave a speech yesterday where he, you know, is pushing for more vaccination. There will be mandates for government employees. He is urging more masks. There are mask mandates. Um, the right has responded with pure fury and petulance about uh, requirements to wear masks. So give me your sense of where we're at right now, because I, I think we, we're constantly in the back after all these years. You, you kind of think, okay, we, this is a reality check. We have like 600,000 dead Americans. This is really terrible. We have this new Delta variant with these stories out of Missouri and, you know, of, of, of people on ventilators saying, oh my God, I should have had the, I should have taken the vaccine. Some politicians now saying, take the vaccines. It was like, again, five minutes of rationality. And then yesterday, it's all mask wars and vax wars all over again. So make sense okay. of it for me, Mona. Okay. Charlie, all right. So I I do have a sort of sober, you know, policy proposal response to this, but I I before getting to that, I just have to say this 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 fury on the part of the right about having to possibly put on a little piece of cloth over your face um, is entirely because they have been telling people not to get the damn vaccines. Yes, right. I mean, for God's sake, they created this. Um, it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this point. And um, now not everybody who's resisting getting the vaccine is a, is a Republican, but a big portion. I mean, if you look at the data on the number of Democrats versus the number of Republicans who've been vaccinated, it's really stark. You just look at the um, map. You know? Yeah, and the map exactly. Um, and and so you know, I, I mean, the idea that they should now be giving themselves permission to say, you know, uh, you can't trample on my freedom. What do you mean I have to put on a mask? Yeah, well, yeah. get the damn shot. You know, okay, but- I, I, I'm, I am, I am with you on that. I mean, the whole, um, and this is me. This is not Mona Charon. Okay, and this is this is my sober policy um, response to the number of unvaccinated people and the disinformation campaigns. Fuck these people. Uh, that, that's me. But on the other hand, okay, let, let me be, um, you know, uh, push back a little bit here. I'm looking at a video right now of the of the Surgeon General saying vaccinated parents should wear masks at home with their kids and outside. I'm, I'm sorry, that's crazy. And this is where my fury comes from is that I have to wear a mask now because of these other idiots who refuse to take it, that I might not be able to see my grandkids because of these morons, because of the demagogues who have spread disinformation. And that's my fury. I just, you know, again, the masks are a distraction because it all comes down to if you people would just get the fucking shot, we wouldn't have to do this. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, Bill Crystal had a very good um, conversation that was released this week with Dr. Ashish Jha, uh, the dean of public health at Brown, and uh, highly recommend it. And um, so there were a number of things that were pretty um, worrying in that conversation. One was that apparently we don't actually have good data on 
how many breakthrough infections there are. You know, that is people who did get vaccinated, but are nevertheless getting sick. But he gave a couple of um, anecdotes that were enough for me to say, you know, but by the way, Ja himself said, you know, starting the last 10 days to week, I've been starting to say, yeah, I'll, we can go out for dinner, but let's try to find a place with outdoor seating again. Whereas before this, he had been saying, yeah, we can, we can resume normal life again. We can eat inside. Now he's back to, oh, let's try to sit outside. Now, one of the things he says is there is the CDC has not been keeping good records of the number of breakthrough infections. And he knows of anecdotal, anecdotally, people who have gotten it, who were vaccinated and were quite sick. That is, they don't wind up in the hospital, but they have like 103 fever for several days and they lose a week of work. I mean, that's not nothing. And that's enough to make me think, all right, you know, this, this Delta variant is something that could even affect me, even though I'm vaccinated. It's enough to make me say, oh, I'm going to eat outside or, or wear a mask back in the supermarket or whatever. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is. And, you know, it was interesting. All the right-wing talk people and TV and so on, they had a moment there. It's almost like there was a meeting of, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the ghouls who run the place um, saying, um, you know what, it's our people who are dying uh, because of the misinformation that we've been putting out about getting vaccinated. So we better change our messaging and tell them to get the shot. So for a little while they did that. Mitch McConnell is, is running ads in Kentucky, 100 uh, radio stations. Uh, I didn't know there were a hundred radio stations in Kentucky, but whatever, um, you know, urging people to get immunized. So, you know, there's been a little bit of a pivot on the part of the right wing, um, to though McConnell himself has always been pro-vax, but in any event, you know, that the, in general, the message, yeah, the, the message has been, um, skepticism, mockery, even though, you know, that people like, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are, are vaccinated. Of course they are, you know, but anyway, yes. it's just, oh, it's just maddening. They're killing people. Um, and they're making it, as you say, they are making it worse for those of us who did get the vaccine. Uh, because now, first of all, we are a little bit vulnerable uh, again, possibly because of breakthrough infections, as long as this variant is going and who knows what the next variant could be. Um, and furthermore, um, you know, it does require these these renewed public health measures. Damn it. So, I mean, I, I generally would consider myself more on the libertarian side, but there's always been a carve out for public health. Right. I mean, right. we've always well up until now, there'd been and I guess this is part of the know, watching how the standards are constantly changing. I don't have a problem with with many of the mandates. I, you know, whatever they use, you know, use the incentives, use the disincentives. Uh, basically say that, uh, you know, you if you want to go on a cruise ship, you want to get on an airplane, you have to show proof of vaccination. I think employers are completely justified in having that sort of requirement. And as I've mentioned several times, um, if the SEC said it, if you want to come to a college football game, um, you know, have, you know, you know, be vaccinated. Um, you also made a really interesting point last night, though, about the psychology of many of the uh, resistors and deniers that in many ways the the mandate is and bear with us here. It's a little bit liberating because it gives them license to be able to do something, to be able to say to their friends and family, OK, 
I have to do this. I, you know, I, I didn't choose to do it, but they made me do it. They get to kind of grumble about it. I mean, isn't that right? I mean, aren't we yeah. seeing that as a matter of psychology? Absolutely. And I, and I, I'm, uh, I should give credit to Matt Iglesias, who, who was the first one to make this point, who said, look, if you've wrapped your identity around being vaccine skeptical or thinking that the whole thing is overblown and you're young and healthy and you don't have to worry about it or whatever, um, it, it takes the burden off you with your peer group if you have to get the vaccine. If yeah. your boss says, and, and the, the, the system that I like the best, well, I'll get to that in a second. Yep. Um, uh, but it, it lifts the burden, therefore, psychologically, you can say, you know what, I didn't really think I needed it, but my boss said I had to have it, so I got it. You know, And, um, and that way, um, they, can, they can hold their heads up. They don't have to feel like they're, they're um, abandoning the team you know, to, uh, to get the damn shot. Um, and, and by the way, the other, the other thing that I think would possibly be a way, you know, because I do agree with people who say, look, you cannot, it just in a, in a liberal democracy, you cannot force people right. to get a shot. Absolutely right. not. Right. Can't force them. But you can certainly put incentives in place. So it could be, look, you know, you can get a free vaccine, or you can agree to be tested twice a week, and you pay for the tests. You know, well, fifty I mean, bucks a shot or whatever it is, and and this is this is not a non-conservative position. Conservatives always said, "Hey, you're free to make the choices, but there are consequences for the freedom." Yeah, I mean, there That's are right. you know, and the marketplace ought to have you know price in the choice, you know, the consequences and the price of that of you know of the decisions that you make. So we'll see where where it goes. I I I, I wish the CDC was a little bit more savvy in some of its messaging. Um, I, I think that they've, they've opened themselves up. Uh, some of the stories that we're reading today, I mean, I, I guess, you know, part of it was they, they backed into it. They, they came up with the guidance without showing the, the research behind it. And then today they've gone to the papers and said, well, this is what we based it on. And it's, and it sounds pretty scary. I mean, there's no, I mean, it's, um, it is definitely no joke, but I, I must admit that I'm a little bit you know, confused about it. So the Washington Post story, um, the Delta variant of the coronavirus appears to cause more severe illnesses than earlier variants and spreads as easily as chickenpox, according to an internal federal health document that argues that officials must acknowledge that the war has changed. So, uh, yeah, I, I've been, I've been a little, I mean, I, I certainly understood the criticism of the CDC about, you know, screwing up the testing early on, that was really bad. But I don't know, in the interim, I, I'm not as tough on them as a lot of people because it's a new virus, it's a new situation, right. and there's a little bit of fog of war. And I don't know, I mean, I, I think they've been trying their best. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, I'm disinclined to be that critical of them in a situation where there's just this fire hose of information moving. coming. Well, so last night during our live stream, um, JVL had us go around the table and say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how worried are we about the the Delta variant? And I, I, I think I said, I don't even remember, like what I say, six or seven. Yeah. But, but what I said was, and I don't know whether you put the name on it, what really worries me is if you continue to have millions of people who are unvaccinated, it's like this stew out there cooking. And it's not just the, the it's not just the Delta variant. 
it will be the the variants that come after that. Maybe the Epsilon variant, which may be even scarier, which may blow through the vaccine, which is, again, why you need to have the herd immunity, because it's still cooking out there. And as you put it, and it's not and it's very much a moving target. And think about this. I mean, as bad as this, as, as catastrophic as this virus has been, um, we've been fortunate in that it tends to target the old, not the young. Right. That could change. It could. You know, mm-hmm. a new variant could hit kids and babies. And, you know, imagine that. Imagine the grief uh, of, a, of that kind of change in the virus's makeup. I mean, you know, we have to take this deadly seriously. I yeah, I, I, I think we should vaccinate the whole world. That's my view. I think we can afford to do it. We and the other advanced industrial nations should just get together and crank out vaccines and get them all around the world because we're not safe as long as the vaccine is stewing anywhere. It's a scandal that it continues to, to percolate here in our own country. But we also have to think about the rest of the world because we're not obviously um, immune from what happens anywhere. No, not at all. Uh, hey, let, let's take a quick break because I, I want I want to talk um, about the infrastructure bill uh, legislation and whether anybody actually cares about this. That I mean, a little contrarian question here. And also, uh, Mona, I want to ask you about your uh, your piece in the Bulwark earlier this week, where uh, you uh, you actually I had some tough love for for Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger that that what they were doing was great, but but perhaps too late. So um, I want to talk with you about that in just a moment. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams, uh, or others like the Next Level podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we are back with with Mona Charon, um, my colleague from the Bulwark. So let's talk about the what ought to be the the dominant political story of our time right now, or at least of the week, which is that we actually had an infrastructure deal and this amazing vote earlier this week, uh, sixty seven to thirty two to move ahead with this basically a trillion dollar bipartisan package. Um, I thought it was interesting that the that 17 Republicans voted to move ahead on the legislation, uh, even after uh, the orange the orange one uh, from Mar-a-Lago issued all sorts of threats against rhinos. He's uh, Donald Trump, who was not able to ever get an infrastructure bill on his own, wants to mm-hmm. sabotage this one. But this is a big deal. We're talking about trillions of dollars, and. It, I actually think something's going to happen. I've I've moved from being skeptical to thinking they're going to get this done. But I guess here's the question. Does anyone really care? Is this, uh, you know, have we we moved on to other issues that seem to engage our passions? This one, it doesn't... I just, I just I just don't sense that the masses are as worked up as conventional wisdom would suggest they are. Right. Um, So, you know, the argument is that this is very important um, because Democrats and Republicans both need to show that they can govern and that the system has not broken down so completely uh, and that the fact that we have gridlock has been interpreted by people 
at, at the grassroots uh, as evidence of failure, that uh, they never get anything done, and so on and so forth. And it leads to cynicism and lack of faith in government and so on. But I, you know, and that maybe, this, you know. These are, this is a good argument. I, I yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah. So that's the argument. But if you look at what, and maybe it's true, but if you look at what sort of seems to agitate the grassroots or you look at what issues people use to fundraise, it doesn't even come into the radar screen. Now, maybe it will prove to be very popular and maybe it will prove to be um, a big win for for everyone and for the democratic process and for faith and in, in getting you know neutral uh, you know coming to to the center because they're you know both sides gave on things that were important to them to get a compromise which is what you want in a democracy and so forth but I don't know if it really will have that much of an impact we will see um, by the way I I'm still pretty conservative when it comes to things like government spending. Very skeptical about government spending in general. Yeah. I think most of the money gets wasted or it gets funneled into the hands of people who are good at manipulating the system. Um, and uh, and so I, you know, plus you know, most infrastructure is local, not national. You know, with exceptions mm -hmm. like the inter interstate highway system and airports and things like that. But um, anyway, but I'm not saying I'm against all of it. But a trillion, a trillion dollars. That's real money, um, and uh, you know, I I I do worry about inflation. Anyway, so leave that aside. I mean, that's all so you know, 2010. That yeah, <laughs> nobody, I know nobody else <laughs> in the world thinks that way anymore. So whatever. But um, but I, I just I'm just not. Look, I would like to see Biden get a win. Frankly, I would like for him to be able to to say, you see, I never gave up on bipartisanship and I, I stuck it out and, and it worked. And I think that would be a good message, but I'm not really, I'm not positive that uh, it will have the, the desired effect. I'm not sure. No, I don't know that it will either. Um, and, and, and I do wonder whether or not we have politicians who are fighting the last war. There's sort of the assumption if you put you know, money in people's pockets, if you do these things, that you will be rewarded for this. Um, you know, by the old rules, yes. I actually do think it's important that they get some sort of a bipartisan deal because, you know, number one, I, I think that they'll have more rational g governance. Um, there are dangers to have one party rule. I think uh, we have seen in California what happens when you have one party rule. So I like that idea. I actually am very skeptical about spending, but I guess I'm much more favorable to, you know, building things, infrastructure. Yeah, me too. Um, me too. I, I think yeah. if, you're, if you're going to put money in, I mean, the reality is, is that we need to spend money on, on, on roads and on bridges and on airports, all of those things. And I think back to some of the, you know, folks that, that, you know, I have followed over the years, you know, the, you know, I'm from Wisconsin, as I may have mentioned here, uh, <laughs> but, but, but before, before Scott Walker was around, uh, Governor Tommy Thompson um, uh, was a long serving governor here, and he was a builder. Now, you know, some orthodox conservatives were somewhat critical of him, but he never thought of conservatism as not, you know, doing the maintenance, not improving right, the right. infrastructure. At some point, you have to invest um, in that we are all we're all living on the in the 
on the you know oceanside condominium at the, at the meeting going so should we invest in in in, in repairs I'm a, i want to be yeah. the guy going yes yes we should definitely invest in the repairs okay yeah. so yeah I, no fair enough but charlie can i just can i just mention one quick thing because you know sure. i'm i'm not against uh building stuff although i i still maintain that a lot of it will will line people's pockets who probably shouldn't have their pockets lined i, I think that's inevitable with government spending but you know what I am open to now that I wouldn't have been five years ago is the idea of subsidizing transportation for the poor. Make it easier for them to get to and from jobs. You know, why why not spend uh, money on making yeah. it right? Make it free for people who are poor to to take the trains and the and the buses to to get to work. I don't know. Okay, is, that, so I, is that crazy? No, it, it is it is not crazy. <laughs> and I, I'm 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 sighing because of one of the arguments that I had even before this current era was when all of the beautiful people um, were pushing a high-speed rail. It was, we had a big debate in Wisconsin about this, mm-hmm. uh, a high-speed rail b- between Milwaukee and somewhere north of Madison. It didn't actually go anywhere, and it wasn't actually high speed. It was only like 70 miles an hour, and it would drop you off north of the city. And um, for some reason, Democrats thought this was a fantastically good idea. And I was among those who said, no, it makes no sense. You're spending this massive amount of money on a train that yuppies will take, but you know, getting in your Lexus and driving from Milwaukee to Madison is still going to be cheaper and more efficient and faster than mm-hmm. taking this train, which takes you nowhere. Okay, blah, blah, blah. I said, now, if you really want to spend $100 million, why don't you actually spend that money on a transportation plan that solves a problem that exists? And one of the problems that exists is that you have a lot of people looking for jobs in the central city, but the jobs are out in the suburbs. Right. So the, the problem is, how do you get the workers to the jobs? How do you connect employees with employers? That seems a completely legitimate and rather urgent transportation problem. And what was interesting was no one seemed interested in that. They wanted to build fancy trolleys that went nowhere or high-speed trains that went nowhere. But the specific question of how do you make transportation affordable for people who would then use it to add to the economy, it just like fell between the stools. Nobody was willing to pick that up. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the Democrats always say, the Democrats always say, well, if you, if you propose something, and this may have some truth to it, but if you propose something that's only for the poor, it won't have, it won't have broad public support. And so you have to always frame things, but that doesn't mean that you have to spend money on a train from where nobody lives to where nobody wants to go either. Right. Well, I mean, you, you could certainly cast it as, you know, this is job creation. This is how yeah. we put people yeah. back to work. Okay. Absolutely. So um, y- y- let's, let's have something you and I disagree about. Okay. We have okay. to do this. Okay. okay. Because you wrote earlier this week, I wish I could be a Cheney fan. I really do. Representative Liz Cheney has conducted herself honorably for the past nine uh, nine months. Her courage in telling the truth about the election and the attempted insurrection of January 6th has been punished by the Republican conference. So you want to be a fan. Now, my disagreement is I am a Liz Cheney fan. Uh, I am an Adam Kinzinger fan. Your point, though, is that they're too late. Make, 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 Make your case for not joining the... Charlie Sykes, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, fanboy club. <laughs> well, 
you know, as I said in the column, I, I am, of course, grateful for what they're currently doing, and I uh, honor them for it. Um, but I, it is very, very hard for me to forget that they both voted for Donald Trump in 2020. They supported I his did. re-election, Charlie, after the disastrous handling of the virus, after QAnon, after all of uh, d- the daily outrages. They still said publicly that they were for his re-election. Um, and, you know, that is a symptom of, of where the, the, the everybody in the Republican Party with the very tiny, with just a, a number that you can count on one hand of exceptions, um, felt that they didn't, they didn't have the courage or the strength to, um, to stand against Trump earlier. And we've heard all the reasons and we've rehearsed them a thousand times, but I do believe, you know, and so one of the arguments that you hear is, uh, it's the base. The base is is you know expressing itself, and the people who are in elected office are simply responding. And you can't expect them to go against the base because then they'll be gone, and somebody even Trumpier will yeah come in and so forth. But but my view was uh, always that from the very beginning of this whole era was that the collapse of elites um, allowed the base to get more and more corrupted. Right. That. Um, that if there had been consistent leadership, if they had all held hands and done the right thing right from the beginning, um, this thing, this this boulder wouldn't have been able to gather momentum rolling down the hill. And uh, the base doesn't get its ideas from nowhere. It doesn't. It it does take guidance from those above. I mean, one of the things that the that the mob was saying as it stormed the Capitol was the president sent us right. I mean, if there's an example of leadership for you. Um, but look, I, I, I again, I, I hate to criticize Cheney and Kinsinger because truly they've been fantastic. And uh, in these last weeks, you know, God bless them. But um, but I just feel that there was a a real catastrophic failure of leadership throughout the entire Republican uh, elite that um, that helped get us where we are. Well, that's true. See, we don't we don't disagree about that because. And, and this is the question that we will never actually know the answer to. Um, what would have happened had these elites stood up earlier? Because you and I remember what it was like in 2015 and 2016 when most Republicans and most conservatives saw Trump for what he was. And mm-hmm. the question was, would they be able, would they, would they, would they muster the, the, the courage to be able to push back against him? And of course, we got the answer. You know, you, you mentioned, I mean, here's the key question in your article. I mean, it's great that, you know, they, they've come around, but how might this story have unfolded differently if they and thousands of other Republicans had found their uncrossable lines sooner? What would have happened? Now, many of them would have lost their positions. You know, maybe Paul Ryan would have lost his speakership, but we wouldn't be here where we are right now. And, and your point about the base is, is, is also important. You know, that the base doesn't get its ideas from nowhere. You said, and again, I'm going to read you your own stuff. It gets them from Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and the rest of the conservative media world, and it gets them from elected officials. To paraphrase what uh, police officer Harry Dunn told the committee, when elected officials give permission, there is no limit to the violence that may ensue. And that has been the story uh, up until now, is that they've all given permission. They all yes. soaked all of this. 
this didn't just happen. Maybe it was latent. Maybe it was, you know, the, the pre-existing condition or the recessive gene of the right wing. But that's where thought leaders come in. And they didn't and they and they and they didn't and they didn't exercise their role as being a thought leader and as being right and gatekeepers. Um, You know, you remember I'm old enough to remember when uh, David Duke was running for um, governor of Louisiana as a Republican um, and uh, George H.W. Bush was president then. And he gave an unequivocal statement repudiating him and saying that that kind of disgusting clan hatefulness with no place in the Republican Party. And everybody echoed H.W. Bush, all of the elites. Um, and uh, it, of course, gave rise to my favorite political bumper sticker of the time, uh, which was uh, he was running against Edwin Edwards, who was, you know, kind of a uh, scamp and a, and a <laughs> sleazeball. Sleazeball. Thank no. you. Um, but but the bumper sticker, I'm sure, you know, was um, vote for the crook. It's important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, and it was it was yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, those days. Yeah. And, and incredibly quickly, how much they just folded, all of the standards just collapsed. And, uh, and, and it's, it's scary. I mean, I've always thought that this, that civilization was a thin veneer atop our roiling passions. Um, but, uh, but I actually have to say I was stunned at the rapidity with which, uh, the, the conservative movement, the intellectuals, uh, the office holders, the opinion shapers all just collapsed. Yeah. So again, it's, it is, it's very, very good that Adam Kinzinger and, and Liz Cheney have come around. I mean, I, 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 sh- I share your frustration because I remember, um, you know, throughout 2018, 19, 20, being very, very frustrated at people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who he kept thinking, you know, look, you, you know better. Why are you going along with this? Why don't you draw the line here or here or here? Uh, they both voted against the first impeachment. I mean, they, as you right. pointed out, they wanted to give him another four years or, or said they did. You have a very harsh um, analogy here, though. You say in your piece, to speak up now is better than nothing, but it's a little like saying you'll take away a drunk driver's license after he crashed into and killed an eight-year-old. What about all of those times when you saw him get behind the wheel after five drinks and did nothing? So that's an interesting analogy is that the Republican Party, including these guys, sat around and at the bar and watched him, you know, take one drink after another, stumble out of the bar, get behind the wheel. And, you know, now that he's killed somebody, they're they're willing to take away the driver's license. But um, they were there for all of it and, yeah. didn't, and I, didn't say or do anything until, no. until after much of the damage had been done. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's it's not as if January 6th was the first offense. No. <laughs> right? I mean, there were so many lines that had already been smashed um, and so many ways in which he was a catastrophe as a president, um, so much damage that he did to the country's fiber, to respect for institutions, to the rule of law, all of it. Um, and uh, and they they thought, well, this is a... This is this is a blip, you know. Things will go back to normal uh, after after Trump. So we just have to keep our heads down, and uh, and that was just that was just wrong. I'm sorry. And, yeah, it uh, is. 
I, I guess this is where I, it, it comes down to the, the the pragmatism of the moment that that if in fact this is a this is an existential crisis, then then it's all hands on deck. I, I, I'm also, you know, the, this whole question of what do you have to do to get some sort of of a re- redemption. I mean, you understand that a lot of people on the left will say pretty much the same thing about us that we oh, were conservatives for years and years and years, and didn't we build this? Didn't we contribute to all this? And I was asked this the other day. Um, on one of the shows, and I said, you know, th- this is a very interesting question. You know, we ought to have a seminar about it, but um, perhaps another time, because right now we are faced with this crisis under these circumstances at this moment. And if it is an existential threat to our constitutional order, perhaps we ought to um, just, you know, set aside uh, the you know long-term blame game and look around and say, who's with us on all of this? And the fact is that Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are exercising an extraordinary amount of political courage, which is vanishingly rare in the Republican Party. I think, I guess, maybe everything you're saying, every everything that you said, of course, is true, and all the frustrations. But still, it's rather stunning to watch them take the positions they are because it's such a contrast with 99% of other elected Republicans. So, Absolutely. I mean, that makes it so extraordinary. Yes. No, it is. And uh, I have to say, if if we were waiting for a star turn, both uh, both uh, Kinzinger and Cheney have, have really performed. I mean, they, not that they're being insincere at all, but the, it has been um, incredibly impressive to watch what they've done. And, and Cheney, as I mentioned in the piece, has paid a real price and uh, she it may will. lose her seat. And, and, and I don't even, and I don't discount the fact that with the atmosphere being what it is now, um, y- your own personal security is at risk now when you, when you uh, take a stand, uh, which was not true early on. Um, again, things have been allowed to accelerate and accelerate to the point where it has gotten to this point now where you do have to worry about your personal security, uh, which is, you know, another part of our our tragedy. And is and is not and is not trivial. I mean, it, it's easy for people to sit back and, and talk about this. But you know, I, I remember I used to when I was doing my radio show would every once in a while, you know, tell people to take a deep breath and, and remember that the people that we're talking about are actually still like real people. That they're yeah. actually real human beings, they are persons, and that they experience things the way others do, that they have families, they have to, you know, go into and from their homes, they, um, and these, these threats are not necessarily abstract. Mona Churn, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, we appreciate it very much. My pleasure, Charlie, anytime. Uh, we we love to have you, particularly for our for our uh, our weekend podcast. Thanks everyone for listening to this weekend's podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday. And we will do this all over again. 